You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. In effect, people train the mind in such a way that they experience part of their mind as the presence of God. They learn to reinterpret the familiar experiences of their own minds and bodies as not being their own at all, but God's. They learn to identify some thoughts as God's voice, some images as God's suggestions, some sensations as God's touch or the response to his nearness. They construct God's interactions out of these personal mental events, mapping the abstract concept God out of their mental awareness into a being they imagine and reimagine in ways shaped by the Bible and encouraged by their church community. They learn to shift the way that they scan their worlds, always searching for a mark of God's presence, chastening the unruly mind if it stubbornly insists that there's nothing there. Then they turn around and allow this sense of God, an external being they find internally in their minds, to discipline their thoughts and emotions. They allow the God they learn to experience in their minds to persuade them that an external God looks after them and loves them unconditionally. Tanya Lorman is a psychological anthropologist and a professor at Stanford University. Her first book was Of Two Minds, An Anthropologist Looks at American Psychiatry. Her new book is When God Talks Back, Understanding the American Evangelical Relationship with God. Thank you for joining me, Tanya. It's great to be here. Tanya, this is an absolutely fascinating look. It's a scientific look at the supernatural. You have parsed the ineffable. And I Thank think you. That's a really difficult task. What made you decide to do this? Oh, that's a great question. I've been curious about the way that people experience supernatural reality for a long time. I grew up as a spiritual mutt. My mom was the daughter of a Baptist minister, and she drifted away from the church. My dad was the son of a Christian scientist. He became a doctor. All three of my cousins are fundamentalist or theologically very conservative Christians. I grew up in an Orthodox Jewish neighborhood. So I just had this sense that people came to the non-material, the spiritual, the divine, with very different understandings of what was true. As an anthropologist, you decided to look at the American evangelical Christians' experience of God, particularly those people who hear God talk back to them. Mm -hmm. Talk about finding the right place to conduct the study and to look at this and and getting yourself in as an anthropologist. I mean, were you welcome? Studying evangelicals is the easiest anthropology I have ever done. People want to talk to you. They want to talk about their experience of God. The particular church I chose, I chose in part because they were really comfortable with me and comfortable with where I was on what they would call the journey. People, this particular church welcomed the unchurched. And so I didn't feel like You know, my personal walk with God was under scrutiny at every moment. The church I found was a church that 
I thought best represented the shift of American religion after the 1960s as people, sh- as people yearned for a more immediate and direct experience of God, as the Vineyard Christian Fellowship. It grew out of the churches that were grew out of the hippie Christians on the Southern California beaches. It's... Um, Those churches, they borrowed from Pentecostalism these vivid ways of experiencing God. And churches like the one I spent time in, and there are thousands of them in this country, really use those techniques or those practices, but they mute them down for white middle-class people. I was struck by—this church was intriguing to me because it expected people to hear God speak back. Now, one of the things you do in your book is give us kind of a, a little bit of a pocket history. And I think that's it's so interesting mm-hmm. to understand that the kind of revival we're going through now is not something new, that these have happened before. Yes. So we are in what's sometimes called the fourth great awakening in American history. These are decades where Americans have yearned to touch the divine, to feel God's immediate presence, to uh, feel that he's walking by their sides. This one, I think, serves a somewhat different purpose than others and arises for some somewhat different reasons. But it, you know, people have used certain techniques to find God real for many, many centuries. It interests me, too. You alluded to this earlier, how what we now perceive to be kind of the bastion of the far-right political wing um, of church experience grew out of the far left of the hippies, yes. the Jesus freaks. <laughs> yeah, I think that's an amazing and still untold story in uh, in American history. It seems to be true. I mean, so this impulse for a vividly experienced God really came out of that hippie movement, kids baptizing themselves on the beach. And they sort of interacted or intersected with an evangelical movement that wanted to move out of the backwaters where they had been sort of spending time. I mean, theologically conservative Christians weren't part of the American political scene or really the social scene in the first half of the 20th century. It was as the hippies discovered God that some evangelicals uh, decided to to move more in the fr- forefront of the American political world, and somehow those two forces intertwined, so that the fund the um, evangelicals often became more experiential. So roughly half of of evangelicals, I think, are experientially oriented in our country. And at the same time, the hippies found their social activism shifting to the right, away from the left. Well, it's such an interesting story. You found this church that you wanted to study. It's mm-hmm. called the Vineyard. This is in mm-hmm. uh, Chicago was where you started. Tell That's us a right. little about bit about discovering this church, as you said, in your own backyard. It was actually across the street. I walked in initially, and you know, it seemed like it wasn't the church that I wanted to study because it wasn't didn't seem very different from the kinds of churches that I had gone to when I was younger. Nobody was kind of, nobody was speaking in tongues, nobody was falling over. And so I went looking for other churches. And then I came back because I realized that this, this vineyard church was exactly the kind of church in which the pastor taught people how to experience God as a person among people while also being a great majestic being. But that the church 
taught people not only to talk to God, but to expect that God would talk back. This is such an interesting notion because um, the idea that you can teach people this, and this is, I think, what your book really hones in on, are are methods of prayer that actually change the way that we parse our own internal thoughts. And this goes back to something that's an important concept called Mm -hmm. theory of mind. Mm Mm-hmm. So one of the things that you have to learn when you come to a church like this is to think about your mind differently. I I describe it as having a new theory of mind. Most Americans take for granted that their minds are sort of walled off from the world. You know, what's inside is private. What's outside is, is external and real. What's inside isn't really real. I mean, it's can make you sick if you're sad, but it's it's not like tables and chairs. And what you do have to do in a church like this is to identify certain thoughts that you think, that you kind of experience as your thoughts, as being really thoughts from God. And there's a technique that the church teaches. Um, this is People would use the word discernment to help people identify which of those thoughts are good candidates for being thoughts from God. And you're looking for thoughts that seem to pop into your mind. You're looking for thoughts that seem to be the kinds of things that God would say. This is an unconditionally loving God, not the God of Abraham and Isaac. This is, uh, they look for thoughts that give them peace. And they talk about testing the idea that this is a thought from God by talking to other people who are praying as well. But what I found so interesting is that people would come into the church and they'd be really kind of confused and, you know, uncertain about, you know, what are, what are people talking about? God doesn't talk to me, you know. What, and then as they learn to pray and pay attention to their minds in these ways, they would talk about experiencing God's voice and recognizing it the way they recognize their mom's voice on the phone. Now, this requires something called um, attentional training. And and I think this is so interesting because it it comes um, so close to some of the things we hear about Buddhist prayer and meditation, but it's very different. And they they do not like Buddhist prayer and meditation. (laughs) So it's both, there are two big kinds of prayer practice or mental prayer practice that you find in the Christian tradition and in actually many other kinds of faiths around the world. One we think of as Buddhism or like Zen meditation. You are teaching yourself to disattend to the external world, to, you know, the phone and whatnot. You're also teaching yourself to disattend to the babble of thoughts you have in your own mind. You're trying to still the mind to some extent. I mean, people use different language to describe this. In the tradition that these evangelicals were using, which has as long and as rich a tradition in the Christian church, people are disattending to the outside world, but they're doing so by really paying attention to what they imagine. And let me say quickly, I'm not presuming that God is imaginary. The folks that I was spending time with do not think that God is imaginary. But they're using their imagination to experience God because God is invisible. God is not like tables and chairs. So if you're going to represent God, you've got to use your imagination. And so what people are doing is in prayer and in their their contemplation sessions, they're really using stories from the scripture and, and memories from their own lives to build a rich imaginative framework in which they are having a back and forth conversation with God, going for walks with God, having coffee with God, 
imagining themselves there at the Annunciation. You know, what does Mary look like? What's, what's the expression on her face? And what I found was that this training process really was a training process. It changed the vividness of that internal experience. It changed the ways in which people trusted that experience to be more than mere imagination. And sometimes people reported unusual sensory experiences, almost as if something kind of popped out of the mind into the world. As humans, we experience ourselves as stories. There's yes. a, a half of our brain and yeah. is is a just spends its entire time creating a narrative that mm-hmm. is us. If you if I ask you who you are, you're going to tell me a story. That's right. And what I find so interesting about the way you describe this is that um, this prayer training teaches people to construct two stories in their mind mm-hmm. and to have their own story and then to learn to differentiate parts of that story into the story of somebody else. Yes. So you're using what you know of human relationship to create a representation of God, and but you're also making that understanding of God sort of part of the best of you and the wisest of you and the most mature of you. And you're using the church's ideas about God to shape that representation of God. And then you are experiencing yourself going back and forth talking to this God, talking to him about silly little things. You know, how I felt in class today. You know, I woke up and I'm grouchy. God, can you help me deal with that? And, you know, the challenge in faith I think is always to experience what you imagine as external, what you must imagine as external and as good. And I think that this practice that the evangelicals use help them to do that. Again, I'm not saying that God is imaginary. I'm saying that these are the techniques of our mind which people are using to create a, a, an experience of God that they can he, feel here on earth. And it it kind of works. They do, are able to some extent to experience God as a person among people, to experience God as responding to them, loving them, caring for them, engaging uh, with them. I thought it was kind of remarkable. You know, what? I, I completely agree. And what I found so fascinating as I read your book and got into it was I realized that you had twigged on to what is the most common supernatural experience in America and probably in the world and had found a way to kind of quantify it. And that is a really remarkable discovery as an, as an experiment. Thank you. So what I did was briefly, I was really struck because people in the church said, if you want to know God, you've got to pray. Prayer is hard. You've got to practice it. Some people are going to be better than others, and the people who are going to be good will change. And among the many things that they said would change, they said that their mental images would get sharper. I thought that didn't sound like theology to me. That sounded like something was going on in the mind. So I ran this experiment. I brought in about 100 people. I randomized them. I'll talk about only part of this. I randomized them to prayer or lectures on the lectures on the Gospels. Before we did that, we gave them questionnaires. We sat them in front of a computer screen, and they did mental imagery exercises. We interviewed them pretty carefully. They had to pick up a brown paper envelope that had an iPod 
containing one or other of these 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 conditions. They went out. The rule was half an hour a day, six days a week for four weeks, and then they came back. And we did a bunch of measures. And we were able to show that people's mental imagery got sharper, that to some extent they got better at using mental imagery and attending to mental imagery. They were more likely to report that they had unusual sensory experiences, meaningful unusual sensory experiences, not so many of them, but but a few. They reported more real um, spiritual experience, the near tangible presence of God. And they said that God had become more like a person, that their spirituality had changed, they'd been more emotional. So that was kind of neat. I also found that there were some people who were more predisposed to responding to this training than others. And those are people who score highly on a measure called absorption. So, you know, so that's what's, such an interesting uh, scale. I love the absor- the the Telman scale, is it? Yeah, the Telegon scale. Yeah. It's a really cool scale. It doesn't measure religion. It measures ask questions about being, you know, you know, being caught up in the way you could you experience things that you did experiencing things the way you did as a child, um, being lifted up by organ music, a whole bunch of questions that have to do with the way that you um, enjoy being caught up in your imagination. And the amazing thing is that the, pe- the more highly people scored on that scale, the more they were likely to say that they experienced God as a person. This is before training. Um, the more they were likely to say they experienced God as a, as a person, the more they were likely to experience God speaking back, the more they were likely to get angry at God, to have this kind of personal relationship with God, uh, the more they were likely to report that they'd had some unusual experience, felt God touch their shoulders, talk to them from the backseat of the car. That you call these sensory overrides, yes, which is I think is a really interesting term. And you yourself yeah. experienced a sensory override. It's not studying. Uh, it would, tell us about the six druids. <laughs> okay, so my first project, um, and actually my first book, was a study of people in London who practice what they call magic. And in this practice, they were using their mind in ways similar to the way the evangelicals were using their mind. I mean, these prayer practices are found in many different walks of of faith. And they would say, again, you want to understand magic, you have to do these practices. They're hard. Some people will be better than others. And you'll change. And they talked about mental imagery. They talked about unusual experiences. So that was really interesting to me. And what I was floored by was that I, I'm a good anthropologist. I go native, I come back. And also I was doing these magical exercises. And they had me going places in my imagination. So I built a garden in the sky, and I would go there and come back every day and do things in the garden. And one morning, uh, you know, this is a practice that sort of imagines the earth is alive and, you know, sees the Celtic traditions and the Egyptian traditions and the Greek traditions. They're all kind of mixed into one. Anyway, I was reading a book about Druids, and I woke up early one morning, and I saw six Druids standing by the window. And I didn't think that, I mean, I, I felt that I saw them. And I leapt up out of bed, and they were gone. But the perception was that I had actually seen them. And if that had just been me, I would have worried about 
what was going on with me. But this is the kind of thing people reported. And then as I started looking in the literature, it turns out that something like 40% of people have some reports of unusual perceptual experience between sleep and awareness. And something like, you know, if you show up at a door, at somebody's door with an NIH clipboard and ask them a bunch of questions about mental illness, you still get a rate of 10 to 15 percent who say that they've had some kind of unusual experience. If you ask people gently and in a way that allows them to, you know, say that they were really wrong in their perceptions, rates just skyrocket. So these things are much more common than we imagine. I think what I was seeing with the magicians and with the Christians is that people learn to pay attention to unusual experiences more, to give them more significance, and to interpret them differently. Again, I'm open to the possibility that it is God speaking back. I don't feel that social science can answer that question or can distinguish between, you know, was the God real and the magic wasn't real? Was God present for Peter but not for Mary? I don't think I, I can't answer that question. I can say that when people report these experiences, we can we know a little bit about what's going on in the mind. And I do think that if God speaks, God speaks through the mind. One of the things that interested me was your book is full of stories. It's full of characters. And it's about, in a sense, the power of the stories that we tell ourselves within ourselves. You were writing a story in this book, and it's a very powerful and compelling story. It's among the most powerful uh, narratives I've ever read about this subject. So I'd like you to just talk about that kind of mingling for you of creating this book, which must have been enormously difficult. Oh, thank you. This book has been 10 years in the making. I've written it. I've rewritten it. I, you know, in some sense, when you're an anthropologist, you see everything you're going to see in the first month, and then it takes years to figure out what you saw. And so it took me a long time to figure out how complicated and how textured people's experiences of God were. I mean, these are all people who, you know, you'd come with a survey and you say, do you believe with God? Without doubt, most of them would say yes. But you talk to people about the way they experience God, and he's close on Tuesday and different and, and distant on Thursday, and he, you know, sometimes they believe this and they don't believe that, and they can stand in church and say, why am I here? But then they can sing with God in the shower. It's really complicated. And so um, for me, writing the book was also was a process of telling that story and also, I think, feeling more comfortable with my own uncertain, awkward, complicated narrative of my own faith journey. And, you know, I don't yeah, I, I see myself as betwixt and between worlds. I don't think of myself as a Christian, certainly not a traditional Christian. I would say I learned a lot from spending time with these people. I would say that I um, was able to feel joy in a way that was new to me, um, not always in church, more often in the garden. Um, I just was, you know overwhelmed by the capacity to have faith in the world as good, despite excellent evidence to the contrary. Um, And so I think that wrestling with that 
and how to frame my own views as an observer and to really focus on the faith experience rather than, you know, my friend's stereotypes about evangelicals meant that it was a long process. One of the things I think is so interesting is, and you do a great job of describing this, is prayer technology. And I think that that's a really fascinating idea that uh, prayer as a means of, you know, going in with a series of tools to change your own mind. And Mm -hmm. as you studied this, did you find your own mind changing? I did. So in the broadest brush, what you're trying to do is to make your internal world more alive and to treat it as external to some extent. And there are tools that are able to help you do that. So using your inner senses. So using the mind's eye to see um, the hem of the robe. Using the mind's ear to hear the lap of the waves against the shore. Seeing your conversations with God, however you imagine God, as immersed in this environment of color and sound. And that helps the experience become more alive. It helps your mind feel more alive. And there's the benefit of this is that you're also trying to do what those medieval monastics tried to do, which is to replace the fearful, timid, self-deprecatory thoughts that we all have running through our minds with more hopeful, trusting, optimistic thoughts. Now that is tough to do. There's a reason that psychotherapy is long and difficult and hard. It's certainly true that people I saw at the church, you know, had plenty of tough times, yelled at their kids, you know, struggled, yelled at the pastor, um, felt full of ambivalence and self-doubt and difficulty. But I did think that they were a little more able to have a little internal buffer, to feel a little bit more confident that there was a being, there's something that loved them, to at least fall back on the memory of that experience of love in a way that I thought was impressive. One of the things I think that is so interesting about all this is that... um, the kind of the power of the community, the, the, the way that they support one another, the way mm-hmm. their prayers inform one another. And you have something called the, 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 the prayer team. Yes. <laughs> Tell us a little <laughs> bit about the prayer team. It's kind of amazing to an onlooker. So you go into a church like this, and at the end of the service, there are a group of, in the first church I spent time, group of 10 people wearing red badges, and they are the people who will pray for you. And, you know, and the second church I spent time, people who want prayer come down front, and it's like as much as a quarter of the church of the congregation. And then people who who will give prayer come down front. So now we're talking like half of the church is down in front of the church at the end of the church service. And the person who is being prayed for talks about what they need. And, you know, broadly speaking, they're really talking about ways in which they feel inadequate, broken, they call it broken, lost, confused, sad. And the people around them are, in broad brushstrokes, saying, you're just fine. You're worthy just as you are. And of course, there's a sense of ambition to change. And yes, you will change if 
you're struggling with something like an addiction. But it was really kind of amazing the way that the uh, humans in the church would sort of stand in for God and model this love and acceptance. This doesn't mean that there aren't battles in church, and it doesn't mean that there aren't enormous tensions. But I was, I was pretty generally impressed by the way that the church community saw its responsibility as supporting other members of the community. You know, I am was so interested in this idea of the imagination and the power mm-hmm. of the imagination. And you liken this to a degree to, uh, you know, the childhood imaginary friend. Yes. And, but I think that you do a great job of taking us beyond that concept and not leaving us there stuck with the kind of smallness or, you know, the maybe the uh, looking down on that as mm-hmm. a delusion. But yeah. you, you uh, actually emphasize the power of, of imagination. Absolutely. And I think I gained more respect for the imagination through doing this project. It's, I mean, really, we, so much of our sense of, our, of ourselves is shaped by the way that we imagine ourselves and all kinds of terrible stuff creeps into that self-imagining. These are folks who are using that childlike ability to have an imaginary companion, to have a friend, to have a best character, to um, have a being that um, makes you feel better, and to use that to help themselves be the best people they can be. So you know that when you when you remember that somebody loves you, you kind of calm down. You behave like a better human being. And that's sort of what I saw these Christians reaching for. And that's something that we all reach for. And I don't think I appreciated that when I came into the church. I thought about religion as much more a proposition, this claim about this stuff in the world that is supernatural and God and other and... The question is, is it there or not? And what I saw in this church is much uh, was much more about using your imagination to be a different kind of person, uh, to experience yourself as loved and worthy, and as transforming the inner environment with which you live or in which you live every day. Now, this doesn't come without hazards. Yeah. You, you talked about... Uh, uh, you have create a number of characters in this book, and I really mm-hmm. like that you give us these characters. Yeah. And I think the main character we get is Sarah, and uh-huh. she has some tough times. And, and you talk about the problem of demons, and I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I think demons are pretty astonishing. So in churches like this, and again, this is an awful lot of churches, um, exactly how many we don't know, maybe a quarter of the American population. Um People talk about spiritual warfare, and what they mean by that is that we are in a battle on God's side against evil. And people, pastors, often mean this quite literally. In the churches I spent time, for most people, demons were not so salient. They thought they were real. They just weren't very relevant to their lives. But for the really active prayer warriors, that's the term people would use, for the people who are really engaged in prayer, they are um, 
they be, they sometimes begin to really be alert to the presence of demons. And so they go into a restaurant and they begin to sniff out the presence of evil. And then they have to pray pray about it. Or they'll walk down neighborhood neighborhood sidewalks and, you know, they'll sniff out the presence of, of demons and pray pray about them. And the demons can become really powerful in their lives, just as God is made more real by the imagination, the demons become more real. So Sarah was somebody who was having a rough time anyway. So um, who knows exactly what was going on? She did end up psychiatrically hospitalized. I'm willing to bet that there was something. She had two terrible blows. Her son was sent to Iraq um, her husband was diagnosed with terminal cancer. She had a lot on her plate. But but um, as she struggled with the enormous fear and sadness, uh, people around her began to wonder whether she was possessed by demons. She began to see those demons. And I remember her talking to me about the demons clinging from the top of the chandelier and their mouths open and dripping out stuff and their little pointed teeth. You know, did she see them like with her eyes? But no, but they were pretty real to her. Um, and it's hard for me to believe that the demons, that engagement was so great for her. And she also had a particularly bad um, event, which was that she went through an exorcism in which people attempted to cast out the demons. Sarah didn't believe that it worked. And so now she had even more faith in the real reality of the demons. And she really thought that they were there with her. And so, and this crisis took place shortly before she was hospitalized. Now, one of the things you talk about, too, is whether or not um, people who are experiencing sensory overrides, as you call it, mm -hmm. are are you know clinically insane. Mm -hmm. Are they mad? Right. And but I think you do an excellent job at explaining why that's not the case. And I think that was a, that made that was such an interesting distinction. And I love this term Good. sensory override. So explain kind of what that is and the, how that maps onto hallucinations and why? what's the difference between somebody who's schizophrenic and somebody who's experiencing God? So I use the word sensory overrides to talk about those moments where your senses kind of override the available stimulus. So you're driving along and you really hear with your ears a voice that you identify as God from the back seat saying, I will always be with you. So there's no material person, no physical person in the back seat, but you've heard something. So the other half of my life, I hang out with homeless psychotic women, so I know a lot about psychosis and schizophrenia. People who are diagnosed with schizophrenia, when they hear voices, they hear voices with a very clear pattern. The voices are uh, frequent, so they can hear them throughout the day. They can hear a rain of sound. They can hear five voices. They can hear 17 voices. They can hear murmurs in the next room. What they hear is long. Sentences, paragraphs, conversations, books. The voice can talk for hours. And what the voice says is terrible. Um, jerk. Stupid. 
you know, terrible things. And they comment on your, on your behavior. They talk about how terrible you look and how foolish you are. Somebody who reports sensory overrides, and I've talked to a lot of people who've had this experience, what they report is rare. When I say, have you ever heard God with your ears or seen something divine with your eyes, they can remember one event, maybe two events, at most a handful. It's really unusual. It really stands out for them because they were so startled by the experience. They may wonder whether they were going crazy, but you know, but they were startled, but they really heard it. What they heard was, was short, six words, four words, something very brief. And what they, and the content is good. Uh, God says he loves them. God gives them advice. God says start a school. It doesn't make you feel dreadful. And these experiences are also associated with absorption, with the capacity for imagination, which suggests to me that there's a different psychological pathway for the experience of schizophrenia than the experience of the sensory override. I, that's one of the things I think that makes this book so interesting and powerful is that you really allow us to have a, a kind of a rational understanding of the supernatural. And, and one of the things you, you make uh, you make a great point is that modern believers don't need belief to explain the world anymore. That's just absolutely right. not necessary. Science has got it all down if you want it. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so the reason I think that this God has become what I call magically real, so vividly present that people talk about God woven into the everyday, even though God is invisible, they'll go on a park bench and sit with God. I think that that comes up now because it's precisely because it's paradoxical, it's mysterious, it makes God, you're always searching for God, so God's always salient. You remember God, you pay attention to God more. But it also becomes something private, um, part of yourself, protected from other people, and it's more about the experience than the structure of your belief. When you finish this, Mm -hmm. this whole study, did you feel that you were in a different place from where you were started? And talk about, like, as you say, bridging the gap between those of us who aren't trying to have those experiences and probably aren't and those who do. So that's a great question. I mean, I guess I have changed. I trust my imagination more. I use my imagination more. I try to replace those critical thoughts with different thoughts. And so that has given me some measure of greater peace and comfort and and joy. I think what I would hope to accomplish is that the many people that I know who are afraid of these people because of what they think that they think would come to have more appreciation for the fact that um, their goals are in many ways very similar. We're all seeking for more joy and comfort and ease. We're all trying to be people who are better than the people that we are. We're all thinking of ways to rid ourselves of fear and feel more confident of our ability to trust that the world is good. So the the folks who are evangelical have a certain language for talking about that and a set of claims about the world. But... I didn't think that you know, 
they were so different from me. They learned a set of skills that I hadn't quite learned, but they were, you know, they were struggling in the same way that that I was. And I I, I think that um, there's a temptation for non-evangelicals to think of evangelicals as mindless believers. And I just didn't think that that was true. I thought people were thoughtful and careful and pretty sophisticated about the ways in which they handled their own faith experience. I've been speaking with Tanya Lerman. Her new book is When God Talks Back, Understanding the American Evangelical Relationship with God. Thank you for joining me, Tanya. It's been great. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.